Log Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Neil Garfield here, and Thursday, August 4th. 2016. Our apologies about last week. There was a system failure that prevented us and others from broadcasting. Tonight, by popular demand, we again pursue a different format where you can ask any question you want as long as it isn't personal. And remember, the answer is not legal advice on your specific situation. I can give you my general impressions But before you act on whatever you hear tonight, hire a lawyer or consult with one. Remember that when you're speaking, you should be in a quiet place without distractions or external noises. And remember what I have told you before, that there is no magic bullet that will suddenly free you of your half-baked mortgage. It might have been possible 10 years ago, but things have become so convoluted now that If you want to clear up your problem, it needs to be accomplished in several steps. As I do from time to time, I would introduce this show again with an explanation of why securitization failed and why everyone who is trying to force the banks to buy back toxic mortgages are failing. The answer is quite simply that the reason you can't force the banks to buy back the loans is that they never owned them in the first place. And the reason why securitization failed is that the trusts never owned them either. And that is why neither the banks nor the trusts should have a place in court. Legally, it is called standing, but the simple way of saying it is that if you don't have a claim, you can't go to court and invent one. Nonetheless, that's exactly what's been happening for the last 10 years, and that is the challenge for all of us. You have all heard the terms securitization and derivatives. In theory, there's nothing wrong with them. In practice, however, they were merely illusions. This scheme runs knowledge and intuition of almost everyone who looks at it. The lawyers and judges are not to be blamed for understanding what was so convoluted that federal uh, Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan admitted that neither he nor his 100 PhDs on staff understood it. To put it in everyday language, consider this example. A thief steals your money and then lends it to an unsuspecting, innocent third party. The first question is whether you are a lender. Your money was stolen and then lent to somebody. 
In order to say yes, one would need to apply a brand new concept that the victim of theft, victims of theft are responsible or accountable for what the thief does with the money they stole. Is the thief a lender? Only if you're going to reward the thief with the proceeds of his theft. Is the innocent person a borrower or a debtor? The one who signed papers and who took the money. The answer in law books is anything but clear, but everything, everyone agrees that in a court of equity, the homeowner is obligated to pay back that portion of the money he received that has not already been satisfied by payment. And the question is where those payments went and what gets credited to his account and who made the payments. That is a cloud of issues that I can't go into on this show. That's the subject of what I do as an expert witness. What is clear is that the innocent person who took the money from the thief clearly has some sort of responsibility to repay money. But what if you don't know who received your stolen money? How do you collect it? And can you claim that you have a right to the mortgage that was executed by the innocent homeowner to the thief? If you can, then there is no certainty in the marketplace because anyone can come along and make that claim. The whole purpose of having things recorded in public records is to create a stable marketplace where everyone knows what everyone else knows. But equity certainly demands that you should have a way of getting back all or part of your money as the victim of theft. The problem gets even more convoluted, though, when you find out that the innocent homeowner did not receive all the money the thief stole from you. A lot of that money went elsewhere. The innocent homeowner cannot be responsible for the proceeds of the theft that includes money that the innocent homeowner never received. Up until now, the courts have been rewarding the thief and allowing the thief to even steal whatever claim you had to recover the money. They accomplish this by foreclosure, deeds in lieu of foreclosure, and modifications, where the payee on the debt legally becomes the thief. They are converting an unknown debt to unknown people to a debt owed to the banks and the servicers. You might want to go back to the Blog Talk radio site and listen to that again. As you listen, consider whether you're a layperson, lawyer, judge, or regulator. Think about how this should have been handled, how it has been handled, and what improvements we can make to stop the wholesale theft of money and property. This alone is the most efficient means to reestablish a middle class capable of consuming in an economy that is 70% driven by consumer spending. If consumers have money, they spend it. If they don't have money, they can't buy anything. And at this point in time, even credit is hard to come by. That fundamental element of our economy is the overriding reason why the so-called recovery has not affected so many people here and around the world and caused so much distress. 
that most people would say that the recession is still happening. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida, and this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value to you, if my work has value to you, if the blog has value to you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Okay, so let's go to the first question from Jim, who wants an update on rescission defense. Well, I guess I would start off by saying that rescission shouldn't even be necessary if you think about what I've already told you. Um, Without an actual contract being established between a party who was loaning the money and a party who was borrowing the money, there shouldn't be a contract to rescind or cancel. But the direct answer to Jim is that we we have a perfectly reliable statute that the courts are resisting fiercely. And so if you're going to use rescission, I would recommend that you use it in concert with other attacks and other strategies because on the rescission issue, you're likely to end up on appeal. And you're likely to remain there for some time. While rescission cancels the contract, the loan contract, and it makes the note and mortgage void, and that's clear as could be in the statute and in the Jesenowski decision, uh, Jesenowski versus Countrywide, a unanimous Supreme Court clearly held that the statute says what it means and means what it says. There's nothing else to say about it, and that's what they said. There's nothing else to say about it. You have to follow it, not reinvent it. And yet, despite the passage of time since these questions first came up 10 years ago, when I said that no tender of money or the house or anything is required and no lawsuit is required to make the rescission effective, Despite the fact that the statute says it is effective by operation of law, the moment it is mailed, judges continue to defy the United States Supreme Court. So there is um, obviously a disconnect here. And it goes also to the notion that judges hold in their minds, that lawyers hold in their minds, and borrowers do too. And that is that 
there is no scenario under which the borrower should get any relief at all once they have signed those papers and somehow affirmed a contract with a party that never loaned them the money. And the judges believe and actually fear that any contrary decision from them would undermine our entire financial system. That's a myth that the Wall Street banks have promoted with great success. It runs all the way up to the top of, of federal and state governments. If the banks lose on this, which is to say the banks as parties who didn't make any loans but claim losses from them, banks that didn't buy bonds but claimed losses from them, and banks who received all kinds of bailouts for non-existent losses in the trillions of dollars, those banks are too big to fail according to this myth. And nobody has the courage here, nobody in government has had the courage to call their bluff. It's my contention that rescission should do what it's meant to do, and that is level the playing field, cancel the contract, and get money back to whoever the lender was without there being an encumbrance on the property. I know of only a few instances where there have been favorable rulings on that, and I know of a bunch of other rulings that have been negative. I've read those, those opinions. I don't think they're based on law or fact, but nonetheless, the judges have issued them. So as much as I believe in the rescission strategy, my update is use it, but don't expect any marvelous result in the trial court. And you may not even get one in the appellate court because they're so afraid of undermining the U.S. economy. One of the other questions that I got by email was what's happening with the settlements of these foreclosure actions? Um, and the questioner basically framed it in terms of, who am I dealing with? Well, there's the simple answer is that if you enter into a settlement, that's a contract, and presumably that contract is enforceable for both sides, and so your lender has become whoever you contract with. If you look at the settlements or the deeds in lieu of foreclosure or the modifications, you'll see that what is really happening is that they're redirecting the obligation of whose money was used and to themselves. 
And so what happens when you get away with it? You get a, If you get away with it, you escalate, and that's what the banks have done. They are essentially converting all the investments of all the investors on Wall Street into assets of the banks. And as Adam Levitin has pointed out, the banks really are third parties who have not much to do with this except that they were selling the product in both directions. They were selling the bonds to investors and over 450 versions of uh, loans programmed uh, for uh, to the uh, so-called borrowers. So the answer to his real question, I think, is how can I settle with a party whom I've already said in court is not the servicer, has no right to service my loan, has no right to assert any rights as the trustee for a trust because the trust never got my loan. And a bank that has never owned my loan and never had one dime in it. If I settle with one of them, how am I protected? And the answer, in in my opinion, is that theoretically you are not um, you are not protected, uh, but as a practical matter. What I expect, uh, and there's a, maybe a few lawyers out there that remember in Florida something called the Murphy Act, where in the case of uh, uh, tax deeds, title got so screwed up that there was no way to untangle it. That's pretty much where we are right now with these foreclosures. And... So what I'm expecting is that there will be a reset button created or state or both levels in the legislature where they basically say, look, we have this problem and title is as we are saying, um, if you don't file a claim within 90 days. That's pretty much what happened in the Murphy Act in Florida. I think that was in the 1930s. You can Google it. So my uh, statement is that you pretty much can enter into a contract with the parties who are illegally, improperly, and unfairly hounding you for a payment that they're not entitled to and end their attempt and their attack on you and that ultimately it's my opinion that those contracts while potentially void um, in which settlement modification deed in lieu or whatever occurred all those things are probably going to be covered by a reset button uh, 
which I would expect to be introduced at the legislative level probably within the next two or three years. And I would also uh, tell you that I have heard recently that there is a new rule uh, being considered, uh, I think it was sponsored by Fannie Mae, to allow notaries to uh, notarize using uh, video media. So you would connect like in Skype and somehow or other that would be a proper notary. Obviously under the current rules that would never work, uh, but if it is passed in any state, it'll probably pass in several states, and that's going to make it even more difficult to show that documents were fabric fabricated and robo-signed. So, uh, I don't see anybody here with questions. A lot of people are on the line. Um, so I'll go to the more of the emails. Um, questioner asks uh, specifically about Aquin. Um, Aquin, um, they're, they're in the process of exploring a modification and settlement with Aquin, who, like I just said, really has no right to service anything, um, and who, according to published reports, is potentially going out of business and may go bankrupt. Their stock has uh, hit rock bottom and apparently is declining further. And so the questioner is asking me, what faith can I have in a settlement with Aquin when they're going to indemnify me and, and, and hold me harmless from the claims of any other claimant and all that when they're going to go out of business? That's a version of the previous question. And the answer really is that... Uh, The best way to handle that is to get an order from the court approving the settlement, which will make it difficult for some subsequent servicer to march in and say we're not going to honor that, which, by the way, is the prime risk with Aquin and others when they want to get out of a modification agreement uh, they do the musical chairs thing with the servicers, and you got a new servicer, and the servicer says, well, we don't know what happened with Aquin, but under our guidelines, you don't qualify, and we're going to foreclose. You see that a lot now, and that clearly is, is a, uh, a, a problem uh, for homeowners who, in good faith, pay money, uh, uh, either in lump sum or monthly, uh, in order to satisfy the trial payment period. And keep in mind, folks, that the um, these modifications are not being underwritten by the servicing company. It looks like it is, but in the process of discovery, if it is aggressively pursued, you'll find 
that behind the servicer is one of the mega banks who is doing the so-called underwriting and actually with an eye towards how do they get to make sure that all the money that they receive by selling this loan over and over and over again, how do they get to make sure that they can keep it? And what can they do to get the homeowner into a position where he's likely to default again so they can get the property too? These, the only way the banks can legitimize what they've done is if they get a court order or the equivalent in the non-judicial states where there is a forced legal sale of the property. Everything up to that point is completely illusion. But once a court order is entered and once there is a sale of the property pursuant to that court order, then everything they did before has a stamp of approval on it and now has been legitimized and there are many states, including Florida, that limit your ability to attack the sale uh, uh, after one year. The only thing you can go for is damages, which brings me to the final part of my answer, and that is I think people should be thinking more seriously about damage actions against whoever was involved, and you can broaden out the defendants to all the servicers and all the trustees, etc. And seeking damages for abusive process, wrongful foreclosure, and uh, uh, intervening in your your rights uh, under the FDCPA. There's been a whole bunch of decisions. Uh, or I should say settlements, that have resulted once the uh, banks realized that they were losing on a key point in discovery, which was whether or not they have identified the actual creditor. They keep saying that the creditor is a private matter and that the borrower has no right to intrude on the privacy of the creditor. This is absurd, and thank God, even the judges who are afraid of undermining our financial system are saying that they don't see how this could be an invasion of privacy. But you'd be surprised how many uh, orders have been entered in which the bank has been ordered to turn over documents, the pooling and servicing agreement, and so forth. And as a last point, as we, we're coming to a close here, uh, the mortgage loan schedule has been used improperly, and a lot of lawyers and pro se litigants have failed to realize the significance of it. If you look at the prospectus, it basically says that the mortgage loan schedule is not the one that's being attached. And in fact, 
what they are saying is that the real one will be attached at a later time. So the big question is, was that mortgage loan schedule attached at the time the trust was formed or within the 90-day cutoff period? And the answer is no. And once you are able to press that point in discovery, which is a natural question, they're going to want to use that MLS. Once you press that point so that they have to admit that they don't know when it was created, because they want to tell you who to contact in order to establish when it was created, then it becomes obvious that the trust was never in business, never had an account anywhere, and was not a pass-through entity through which investors were doing business. Thanks for joining me tonight. I'll be back with you next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.